G'day everyone. Uh, today I've got James Morehouse um, who's come to speak to us. He's from ABN Resources over in the UK. So on a sort of HR side of the lubricants business and has some really good insights to share around, let's say demographic trends, um, some something a little bit about hiring, um, personnel in the industry, challenges that we're going to face in the future. So um, I think this is really um, top of mind for a, a lot of companies in the industry uh, and something really interesting to talk through. Um, James, maybe if you wouldn't mind, could you just introduce yourself a little bit and, and maybe what what exactly do ABN Resources do? Yeah, sure. Well, Ray, firstly, thanks very much for having me on the show. Um, big fan of uh, the content that you've been putting out. I think it's really important. We uh, communicate better as an industry to the wider world on what lubricants do. And uh, I think you're doing a fantastic job on that. So thanks oh, very thanks, much man. for having me. Uh, so well, what do ABN Resource do? We uh, essentially are a lubricant base oil and additive market specialists. And we recruit for um, executive leadership, uh, senior sales and senior technical staff globally. Um, we're headquartered in the UK uh, with a team servicing the European market. Uh, we also have uh, people uh, stateside, Dubai and China for global coverage. Um, and um, yeah, it's an industry myself I've been involved with since 2005, uh, always recruiting. Um, I'm a big fan of motorsport. So when I saw all the cars on the track that I liked and all the oil companies sponsoring them, I thought, how can I... Uh, how can I speak to guys and people about motorsport whilst doing getting paid for it? So uh, that's kind of how it started. And then it's, it's been a great development journey so far as we'll maybe go into a little bit later on in this, in this pod. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Um, so straight out of the gate, uh, one of the things that I sort of wanted to ask was whether you see any, let's, let's call it demographic issues uh, with, with the current workforce. And that's a pretty broad term. Um, so we can get yep. into cutting demographics in in various ways, but maybe with that broad question, um, you know, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, I think if I kind of frame that as like a diversity and inclusion question, um, you know, and is there an issue? I think there's definitely pockets of good examples in the industry with uh, DNI initiatives and policies. Um, and I think inherently the industry is an inclusive, approachable and welcoming one. Uh, but if I was giving a school report mark of the industry as a whole, the mark could probably be, could do better. Yeah. Um, you know, we did a trend survey a couple of years ago, which went to a global lubricants audience and the research was quite clear that there seemed to be certain role types focusing on certain gender types. Um, but I think if I could stretch things a little bit wider, purely away from, from demographics, so not just race, ethnicity, gender, age, religion, mm. sexual orientation, physical, you know, uh, diversity and inclusion goes to differences in education, personality, skill areas, uh, experiences, you know, communication styles and, and knowledge pools and that that cognitive piece is a really big one for me, essentially. So, you know, how do we get a diversity of thinkers, brains, learning, 
coming into the marketplace. Um, you know, some big oil companies like Shell, Chevron, ExxonMobil, they're well on the way with quite long-standing um, initiatives around DNI uh, and, and improvements in that. But you know, more widely, when you go into the kind of the heartbeat of the lubricants industry, which is a lot of privately owned uh, multinational um, organizations, you know, I, I don't think a lot of them have a clear uh, DNI uh, policy. Um, so I think there's that's where the could do better bit comes in. Yep. And you know, you could read countless reports from all the household names of studying that you'd respect. So Harvard, Deloitte, Gartner, the conclusions from their reports on DNI are overwhelmingly clear that, you know, this is a pathway to high performance business cultures. And from that flows growth and greater profit. So hmm. we need to be doing it more seriously. So there's actually, so there's kind of like a business imperative to, to go after, um, I, I guess what you're talking about is is sort of diversity of thought, right? So people coming from different backgrounds, uh, you know, you were speaking kind of to the education piece. So maybe you have people that are educated at university level versus some people at trade schools, um, you know, having all of those people come yeah. together, they can, they, they, they effectively make more effective teams. Is, is that kind of what you're getting to? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could, you know, you could look at it from a moral and ethical standpoint, but it's just, you know, good to have equality and, and fairness for all. But, you know, I think you have to kind of make a business, rational business case for these things as well. And, um, you know, it's proven with um, teams in the, in the top percentile for, um, for cognitive and ethnic diversities. These are outperforming their industry peers, you know, in some cases by as high as 25 to 35% higher when it comes to profitability. Um, I think that was in the Deloitte uh, DNI report uh, from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, so, um, <clears throat> you know, and the industry is going through change. So recruiting people, you know, we get a brief where it's like, I just need someone like me, but 10 years younger, that isn't really going to be the type of person to solve the challenges that we're facing. You actually need some new ways of thinking and some new experiences to, to come and meet the challenges uh, and navigate them. Yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting that you say that because in, in some ways our, our industry is, um, uh, let's say, should already have quite a fair bit of exposure to that kind of thinking, right? I mean, when you go on site, for example, um, usually you've got a split between uh, let's say, for example, like w what you would colloquially call white collar and blue collar, right? So, um, yeah. you know, maybe university qualified engineers versus uh, trade, you know, fitters. And in most people's experience, I don't know too many people who haven't had, you know, some kind of light bulb of insight that has come from someone on the other side, so to speak, right? Um, you know, that that's pretty commonplace in, in our a general work environment so it makes sense that that kind of uh shows up in business performance as well so yeah you get um, it absolutely yeah i think one of the things that often gets talked about specifically when we talk about demographic groups is is definitely the age uh of the industry um yeah the uh let's say the perception i have no numbers right so all my evidence is completely anecdotal but 
the <laughs> perception is that we have a very um, aging workforce. Um, my own experience in Australia is that there are a lot of people who have either recently retired or been made redundant, you know, not of their own volition. Um, is that, first of all, is that a global thing? Well, first of all, is it is it real? Is my perception of the situation real? And uh, is it confined to certain parts of the industry or is it global? Um, how aware are, let's say, for example, the executives that you talk to, are they aware of this issue if it exists? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think a few questions to uh, address there. I mean, is the industry aware of a, an aging workforce? I think there is an awareness. Um, is there actually an aging workforce? Yes, there is. I mean, again, you know, from our studies and research, the, the biggest percentage of people currently working in the industry are, are 50 plus. So, um, the conversations I have with executives is, um, concerns about there being enough next generation talent to come through and succeed the experienced hires who are going to be retiring. Um, you know, I think it's really important that we shouldn't overlook the great value that all those experienced hires, um, who are close to retirement are delivering, but we do need to work on that knowledge transfer and continue developing new talents in the sector, uh, to minimize this disruptive effect that's going to be happening soon where there's mass retirements from industry and, and not the necessary supply coming through. Mm. Um, you know, so although it's an issue, we still don't see a huge amount of action around it. Um, people are living longer, they're keeping healthy. So they're working longer. Some traditional markets are contracting, so demand is a little bit down. Um, we've had other matters to attend to in recent times over the last couple of years. So we did pretty well to get 10 minutes into the recording and not mention COVID, but <laughs> there you go. I think that's, I think that's been a big thing for a lot of people to, to focus on and just get through that. Mm. Um, you know, also with the rise of, of new technologies, things like AI, not all the jobs that are getting vacated are like direct replacements. Um, but again, with that technology and emerging markets as well, there's new jobs coming up that need new skills. And, you know, those, those people in the lubricant industry now are going to have to learn how to pivot into those areas. And we're also going to have to understand how to hire from allied sectors, more diverse backgrounds. Uh, so we get the skills pools in to fit the new trends in the lube industry. Yeah. So um, maybe one of the questions I was going to ask you is sort of around um, how do you attract talent uh, to the industry? Um, for me, that's always been an interesting question because I kind of fell into this industry by accident. Uh, um, but yeah. now that I'm in it, uh, I'm, a, I'm really enjoying it and I'm amazed at uh, kind of the diversity of the, the problem set Right. So the one thing I've always enjoyed about being a lubrication engineer is that you get to be involved, not in a specific industry, but in all the industries. You just sort of don't have to pick, you know, a, a specialty. You get to be a bit of a generalist and work across mining, oil and gas, transport. You get to be at the forefront of new technologies. Like it's actually a really exciting and dynamic place to be. But 
Oh, totally. Apparently, no one knows that. <laughs> so, <laughs> which which is its yeah. own challenge. So, yeah. How do you do you see any successful strategies out there for um, attracting talent? And and like you said, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, at the young demographic. It can can be anyone. Whether we're trying to attract people from adjacent industries into the lubricants industry um, as experienced hires, graduates down at the bottom, um, experienced people up at the top. Um, what kind of successful strategies have you seen? Yeah. It's like, firstly, I totally agree. Like when you get into the industry, it is awesome. Like there is so much variety going on. The people are really cool. And, you know, I think what it can do for career development and career growth and the opportunities it can give people, um, you know, it, for me, it's pretty tough to be, I think, um, but you are also right to go on and say that nobody seems to know that. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, and if I'm down, uh, I was at a rugby match this weekend. I was chatting to some people I'd not seen for years. They're like, what are you doing? I was like, well, we do lubricants recruitment. And they were like, you know, they've just met with little giggles. But when you actually said like, well, this is what lubricants do and this is where it's at. Like you could just see like the lights go on and they were like, all oh, right. Yeah, actually. So, um, you know, that little anecdote for me, education and communication, um, is a really effective, uh, uh, strategy for attracting talent. I think, um, you know, when we're talking about getting people at, at all levels of, of experience, I think there's a couple of fundamentals a, a company can do. The first thing they need to do is they need to talk about uh, in a very clear method of communication, what the mission and vision is of that business, because that's the message that the talent gets on board with and wants to be a part of. So, uh, mission and vision, uh, is number one. Number two is value alignment. So if they can actually see how you operate and act, the kind of things that you get involved with, um, and also they can see ways that their beliefs are going to be challenged in a positive way. Um, that can be very effective. And that is a two way thing, by the way, because if, if you hire people whose values align with your organization and you're open to new beliefs, you get a very secure long-term hire in a progressive work culture environment, which is a good match for everyone. Um, the third area, which is important for talent attraction is, is compensation. Um, you know, if it's not at the right level, you aren't going to be on the playing field to get talent. So, you know, I understand costs are rising at the moment for everybody in business, but you know, under investment in your most important asset, which is people, it's going to be the most costly area to cut corners on because you're just not going to attract the type of people you, your business needs. Um, so if I may just go on and say, you know, if those three mission, vision, value, beliefs, and compensation, those are the fundamentals, but then you do have to appreciate there's different drivers for different generations. So, um, you know, the needs of someone in their fifties is usually different to say a second jobber in their twenties. Um, so if we're looking at younger talent specifically, I think, um, something which, which worked, but 
no one seems to push as hard anymore is trying to get early contact at school and university partnerships. Um, this is where you're actually, you know, educating and communicating about the value that lubricants does. And I think you can pick up some people that way. Um, showcasing the industry and educating people is really useful and that can be something done on social media. Um, you know, particularly when we start communicating the benefits of lubricants in, in society. Um, I think also again, through social media, you can emphasize things like corporate social responsibility, uh, sustainability initiatives, uh, digitalization, DNI initiatives, and, you know, things like CSR, uh, DNI sustainability, you know, they're three massive themes for, um, you know, those 20 to 35 year old bracket. Um, they won't really look at companies that aren't offering, uh, clear directions on those three areas. Yeah, that's really, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, not to make it all about money, but when you bring up the, uh, the issue of compensation, uh, not having necessarily like run a lubricant business myself, but the perception I had was that it was always a bit of a challenge because the, let's say the adjacent industries to ours are quite high paying, right? So if you think of, uh, the adjacent industries of sort of mining or upstream oil and gas, they'll have a, a, an overlapping skill set with ours. Um, but, you know, the lubricants, let's say sales business doesn't have the same, you know, CapEx budgets that uh, a lot of those businesses command. So um, I can see that, especially for the core of the business that you were talking about, um, which is that sort of like privately owned, um, you know, maybe... They're still large multinational businesses, but the privately held ones that can be a bit of a challenge um, to to compensate at yeah. the level that maybe the people that you're targeting are expecting. Yeah, I I get that, and um, actually, it, I'm glad you raised it because it allows me to clarify the point. I think um, you know, if if there's someone chasing a buck or a dollar, like there are clearly industries that you can go to where their skills are going to work and they're going to make more money. Um, but there is without a doubt a good talent pool of people who money will be third or fourth on the pecking order. So if they're bought into that vision mission, they see the value alignment, they see a good career path and the money's at a level which works for the quality of life that they need for them and their family, happy days, that's the win. But it's companies that are doing vision, mission, values, beliefs, career progression, and then paying, you know, 10%, 15% below where the quality of life requirement is set. You know, that's where they're going to start losing out on talent. Yeah. So you just gotta, okay. you know, you gotta be, you gotta be at the level. You don't have to be the top level. Yeah. So for conversation, it's almost like there's tables, table stakes you know, to, to make sure that people are looked after. And then it almost feels like then you have to double down on all those intangibles because uh, you're not necessarily going to be able to chase the compensation that we have that, that could be offered in, in adjacent industries. Um, so that, that in itself, I guess, is, is a strategy to, to double down on those things. Um, maybe a little bit of a look towards the future. Um, so especially where you guys are in Europe, um, the EV transition is, let's say, well yeah. underway. Um, there is skepticism across other parts of the world about how fast it's going to happen. But I think the, 
general feel is that it, it will happen. It's just a matter of timing now. Um, so what, given that engine oils probably command 50% or thereabouts of the lubricants market, what kind of impacts do you think that that's going to have on just hiring? Um, well, I think uh, hiring is going to change. Um, you know, the, there's going to be new demand areas coming through. So, um, you know, specific to EV, um, you know, professionals who can develop coolants, gear oils, greases, um, you know, there's challenges with lubrication, heating and cooling significant with EV. So, um, you know, having the actual chemists and the R&D professionals to, to manage that change is, is going to be in demand. Um, it's going to require leaders of businesses to manage that change. You know, if you're an inherently PCMO company doing engine oils at the moment, you're going to need a leadership team to work out your strategy for the future when that market's dwindling. Mm. Um, there's going to be revision to supply chain, uh, cost management. So that's all going to require some skilled workers to manage those areas as well. So, um, I don't actually see it as a less jobs thing. I see it as a different jobs thing. Um, so, um, uh, you know, if I was in that corner of the market just now in, in passenger car, I'm thinking about the future, you know, I've, I've given some specific roles where I see demand, but then Beyond that, I'd be practicing my soft skills. So what are my communication abilities like? How adaptable am I? Can I solve problems? Am I creative? Do I have good interpersonal skills? Because if you get skilled up and trained in those areas, you're going to be allowed to pivot into those new growth sectors in the loop market and go on and have a really amazing career um, in corners of the world which are you know becoming increasingly important with these new technologies so just maybe to to pick up on something you said earlier because you did raise the idea of more ai and more technology maybe backfilling some of some of the jobs so um but in the same at the same time in your answer just then you've talked about doubling down on the interpersonal skills and those this kind of i hate i hate the term soft skills but because they are real skills right but um yeah uh so you, you, you think you see that as still being valuable, that that person to person interaction um, long term is is the way to to win. Definitely. I mean, um, you know, if I looked at digital transformation, which is a huge area of growth in the in the loop sector, mm -hmm. you still need people to run digital transformation initiatives. In fact, um, I was speaking with the head of digital transformation for Shell downstream, and he said, you know, 30% of it's the technology, 70% of it's the people. Um, so actually, you know, managing the projects, implementing the ideas, making it work. Um, so, you know, the robots aren't here to take our jobs, as it were, with, with AI or anything like that. It's just going to um, change uh, the way that we're, we're going about doing our work. Um, and I think that's a good thing, actually. You know, it's it can make working environments safer. It can take away, dare I say it, kind of mundane and boring jobs. Um, you know, which, which can be automized or automated, um, and you know, uh, use that use those skill sets in other areas to be more effective. Yeah. 
And maybe a kind of a question, sort of a last question about the future. Um, if we if we do think that a lot of the market is going to sort of pivot away from that PCMO space into, well, na- naturally the the other area is industrial, which seems to continue to see uh, pretty decent growth across the world. Um, conscious that we are losing technical expertise at that top end, which, as you pointed out, is hugely valuable. There's a there's a whole demographic of people that have um, you know, 30 to 40 years of experience in the industry. Um, and we're potentially going to lose them in the next, let's say, 10, 15 years. Um, so that seems like a challenge uh, to pivot from a PCMO-focused um, industry to an industrial-focused industry. Uh, and maybe if I can sort of flesh out some of the challenges because... You know, in PCMO, there's a lot more standardization, right? So we have a lot more regulation or self-regulation of the industry, which means that, you know, a lot of the engine oils, are, not that they're the same, but but there's maybe not as much technical expertise needed to put together, you know, a, a PCMO business versus an industrial, which can be um, quite tailored and, and, and very specific. Um, so... Do you have any thoughts on how to make that pivot? Because it's a it's a big one, right? Like if you have a PCMO focused organization trying to switch over to to industrial, that's a that's a big change. Yeah, well, I you know I totally agree. It's a massive change. Um, you know, I can even think just the other week we had a, uh, we had a global product management role for uh, like an EAL business. Um, you know, one of the backgrounds they said they consider would be automotive um, lubricants, and I, you know, I, I challenge their thinking on that because I just think um, that for me there was too many differences between the, the market sectors and the applications knowledge to to be effective from day one. Um, so, how would how would companies pivot? You know, I, I think. That's a tough one for me to answer because I'm uh, I'm a recruitment guy, not a big strategy guy. Um, but you know, clearly, I think there's um, uh, there's research and, and and brains out there which will which will make that happen. Personnel, it wise, and how do you make that pivot happen? Um, I think I would be a bit more qualified to speak in that area. Um, so, you know. They need clearly there's a requirement for uh, training and development. Um, so, uh, you know, be that, um, in company training, external consultancy support, or there are partnerships with, um, universities around the world, which hold tribology courses. Um, you know, I think businesses that position themselves closely to that education pool as well, are doing a smart thing. Because, uh, and if they're offering them things like industrial placement years when they're studying, we see a very high rate of people that did that industrial placement year at uh, the company one summer, joined that company after graduation and, uh, assimilate really well to the challenges in the business. So kind of something I think people need to act on now if they, if they're going to pivot so they can start getting the skills and training and development going. Um, and, you know, again, I think 
that comes back a little bit to the talent attraction piece we talked about as well. Cause I think if we are pivoting to more sustainable offers, we can communicate what lubricants are doing on the journey to net zero and lower carbon economies. These are very exciting messages to get out to an audience that will want to get on board with that. So, um, you know, I actually think it's the most exciting time in the loop sector now for the 15 years that I've been hiring in the marketplace and we've got a great story to tell, you know, something to be really, really proud of and an exciting future, but communicating that to a wider audience and training the talent we've got today to pivot, um, is going to be how we, uh, we make that transition, I think. Awesome. Well, that seems like a great place to end it. So, uh, James, uh, thank you so much for coming on and, and giving your insights and your, and your time to the audience. Um, you, know, you guys have put together a, a diversity and inclusion report as well, which is uh, pretty detailed, which I'll uh, link in the description or the show notes um, so that people can take, okay. a, take a look at that. Um, I think there's a, a lot of really good insights in there as well um, that speak to some of the let's say some of the challenges uh, that we, we've talked about today, but as well as some of the, um, let's say the potential outcomes as well. So um, really, really encouraging stuff. So yeah, thank you very much. Race, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on board and uh, thank you to your listeners for tuning in. I hope they all got some value from it and we'll uh, speak again soon. Sounds good.